I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by physician, comedian, and podcaster, Dr. Priyanka Wali. Stay tuned. Okay, so I'm certainly no stranger to this, but many of us identify as slashies. We may have hyphenated identities because our jobs and lives aren't defined necessarily by one role, but perhaps by multiple side hustles. Speaking of slashies, I'm truly grateful to you for listening slash sharing the show, subscribing slash rating the podcast, and following slash promoting us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandika. So often these slashy roles thankfully merge synergistically and wonderfully to allow the person to synchronize themselves and approach them all holistically. And this is truly the case for a physician slash comedian slash podcast host like Dr. Priyanka Wali. Priyanka is an internal medicine physician who actively practices through a collaborative lens, an attentiveness to our own reactions to stress and trauma, and a passion for solving medical conundrums. She's also been doing stand-up comedy for over a decade and has been recognized for her performances across the U.S. and in many media venues. Lately, though, her efforts have also been channeled into co-hosting the podcast Hypochondriactor with actor Sean Hayes, a fun and informative blend of humor, medical knowledge, and learning, centering each episode around an incredible medical story. We caught up to chat about this entire weave, from the medical profession to sharpening her comedy craft to her role as a podcaster. And in thinking of Priyanka's several passions, I first wanted to know whether it was almost a requirement to be an articulate extrovert, or if that was perhaps a misguided assumption. Well, yeah, it's it's funny you ask because I identify as a extroverted introvert. I think in my core, I'm, I'm really quite introverted, but I have, I, I obviously, you know, I'm very public facing and, and don't mind the extroversion part of it. But I think that, so doing things like podcasts or engaging patient care with people or performing on stage, I mean, it, it definitely is something that's quite innate, but I require a lot of time in solitude, reflection, self-care, recharging. I mean, that's just part of the ongoing maintenance to to kind of do what I do. Well, and I wonder if when you don't find time to get that maintenance, mm. does it make the extroversion that much more difficult or challenging? Yeah, I mean, that's life, right? I mean, it, we'll always have yeah. nights where we don't get enough sleep or th- something happens, right? There's some the stress of life. I mean, you just watch the news for five minutes and that can throw you off. So I mean, yeah, I think that's just part of the game, right? And, and what what I've noticed yeah. is that your body will give you the signals that it needs, that if you feel the tension in your body, you know, Dr. Dr. Gabor Mate always says where there is tension that needs attention. And so whenever I notice in my body that, okay, I'm getting really stressed, maybe I'm not drinking enough water, not getting enough sleep, that to me is really an invitation to slow down now. And so I enjoy sort of giving myself periods of respite as a, as a sort of reward for, oh, I'm feeling quite tense. Now 
you know what? I deserve a break now because there's a lot of tension here. And that's the only way to do this sustainably. Otherwise, I think anyone yeah. would be ripe for a nervous breakdown. It's just not sustainable. Do you ever find that, you know, so it's it's often, I find that that's really helpful to share with other physicians. And definitely when you're thinking about the other public facing parts, you know, whether it's podcasting or it's making a production or, or for that matter, being up on stage that, you know, of course that makes a lot of sense, but the duties of, of course, when you have to in fact be patient freight facing and get into the office and, and perform some of your professional duties, do we perhaps uh, have different standards and different expectations for that? And, you know, maybe people are for perhaps less forgiving when it comes to that. Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. I mean, you know, the medical training system certainly indoctrinates young medical students and residents in training to suck it up, to sort of put aside your personal needs for the sake of patient care. It's sort of what we were trained in. But the irony is that that is terrible for patient care. Like if you're unhappy within yourself, it's going to leak into the practice in some way. And so you're actually not doing anyone a favor by bucking up or sucking it up or just kind of gritting your teeth through everything. I do think this is something that we as medical professionals really need to get really honest about, about what what is actually going on within us, in our bodies? What are we feeling? I think COVID really brought that out about the importance for self-care as we were going through sort of very, very challenging circumstances and still continue to do so. And I think it's the onus is on us as the individuals to be part of the change in the culture. And I think it's important to look in the societal construct. You know, we live in this capitalistic patriarchal model where rest is really an aberration there it's not very culturally appropriate to rest because there's certain negative connotations with rest that you're lazy you're you're not productive you're you're not working hard enough and you know in the kind of society we live and operate in rest is really a form of revolution it's sort of a form of resistance to to say actively that no i'm choosing to rest intentionally so that I can end up doing my work with with kind of more quality and intention behind that. You, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about your sort of profile. I talked to uh, Sean Baig, who's a comedian and a dentist. Nice. <laughs> and, and, and one of the things he said was that he absolutely tries at all costs to keep those two worlds separate. Mm, interesting. And, and on the surface... It seems like for you that merging the the worlds together that you sort of crafted uh, seems more of a relative natural for you. Um, have you ever felt that sort of tension? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I totally identify with what he's saying. So, you know, when pre-pandemic, when I was performing a lot more stand-up comedy, I learned very quickly in the first couple of years of performing that telling the audience that you're a doctor without first establishing trust with the audience creates an immediate disconnection and the audience is sort yeah. of, they don't know what to do with you. They, you know, the questions that go through their minds is like, why is this doctor on stage? Like, did she have a nervous breakdown? Like what, what went wrong here? Right. But if you, if you lay out a few couple jokes first and you establish trust, even then, if you then later drop the I'm a doctor's line, there's still like a, a disconnect. There's a cognitive disconnect. 
And so I spent years grappling with this. And there were there would be some shows that I would do where I'd be like, this is an audience where I, I'm not going to say I'm a doctor. And then there would be other shows where I'm like, oh, this is an audience where I need to say I'm a doctor like very quickly to get that rapport. And so this idea that a, a medical professional or a healthcare practitioner can be an artist slash human being slash silly, ridiculous, uninhibited person, that doesn't exist quite easily in the society we live in. And so there were years where I would talk to other comedians and be like, yeah, I don't think I want to say I'm a doctor. And many of them were like, no, you, you should, because that's true to who you are and what audiences want are authenticity. And so that was that's been a work in progress and an evolution and i've always tried to figure out the intersection between the two worlds and it's frankly it's very challenging and this is where i love hypochondriactor the podcast that i do because it is it's it's really a fulfillment of a dream because it is the combination of two worlds that I have been toggling for a very long time. And from an artistic sense, it's the most challenging thing I've ever done to be on as a doctor on the show. But you have to be light and funny and bounce off of Sean, who is an amazing comedic actor. Yeah, there's it's just the right fit for for something. But but the truth is, I, I spent years and I have spent years trying to cultivate that intersection. And I'm still in the process of exploring that. You know, I'm curious about the the converse side, which is when your patients discover that you do other things, or, or perhaps they don't discover, or if you don't necessarily reveal it to them, you know, what's their typical reaction? I mean, do, do they find it that they, you know, certainly see you as more human? Or do you worry that it you lose the gravitas um, that maybe is required with them? So yeah, I never tell my patients that I'm a uh, performer, but one way or another, they'll find out. And I, you know, I've had patients, whether advertently or inadvertently, like come to one of my live shows and, you know, discover the podcast and they'll message me about it. And they're like, Hey, by the way, I need a refill. Right. um, right. It'll be, yeah, no, really. And so, you know, initially I was very, I was trying to consciously sort of hide it, but then it just, you know, things kept growing. And so I, you couldn't hide it after a certain point. At, At one point I really had just like a come to Jesus moment about myself and my life. And I just had to really own like, look, I do both and that's it. And, you know, people are either going to be okay with it or they're not. I think I've been lucky. I think a lot of my patients really appreciate the fact that I'm a performer. They, um, they think it adds a human layer. And frankly, I I think we need more humanity in medicine. I think it's a, it's a blessing in that way. So, um, it's been interesting so far. Uh, I'm very serious and earnest when I'm with patients. I'm not joking around. I'm not silly. I mean, I, it, it takes a lot of energy for me to truly be fully attuned to another human being during a visit. And I take that, that privilege very seriously. And so there's nothing about me in the office that would be like, Oh, she's a performer. You get me out of the office then I'm silly. I'm playing. I'm just doing, I mean, literally somersaults, you know, just all over the place. And, and, and that's honestly just a part of who I am. And I I think it it took a while for me to just embrace that. And, you know, you sort of attract patients that kind of get that too. 
and that energy and, and what flows around you sort of being yourself. But part of being yourself is is taking your profession seriously. Do, do you remember having any moments where when you first sort of began to realize that you were either funny or you had a flair for storytelling? Um, were there uh, some aha moments where you're like, yeah, I, I kind of remember exactly when that started? You know, I wouldn't say there was a moment where I was like, I'm funny. Maybe, maybe like yeah. after I won some comedy competitions, then I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I've got something. But I did get voted class. What was it? I got in high school, I got voted. It's really funny. I got voted class clown in high school. So I was always just silly. I was always just, you know, cracking jokes and being silly. But I, 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 honestly never thought like, oh, one day I'll do stand-up. Stand-up was really a, a morbid fear of stand-up. I ended up trying mm. out stand-up on a on a kind of face my fears whim. I was doing a lot of introspection and, you know, I, there was a part of me that wanted to kind of explore this and face this. And that's, I, it was supposed to be a one-time bucket list activity. It was never you know, I never imagined it would like turn into one of like the defining moments of my life and then later change my career. And, and because, you know, it's, it hasn't been sort of like this, aha, like a single moment, but rather sort of a series of, of events for you. Yeah. Um, is it the type of thing that for you, it's sort of like as become a little bit easier, a little bit smoother with practice and with time and with experience? Oh, absolutely. So, I've been performing comedy for about a decade now, or at least pre-pandemic. It was I was reaching the the eight year mark, and and it's fascinating what happens to your nervous system. Year one of comedy, year five, year eight, year ten. So year one of comedy, I mean, your nervous system is severely dysregulated on stage. That's normal. That's expected. You have yeah. massive amounts of stage fright, and if you're not experiencing that you've either had significant performance experience or there's something else serious, seriously going wrong. Because you watch someone that's done comedy for 20 or 30 years, you can just see how calm and collected they are on stage. Their nervous system doesn't have that dysregulation. And so there's yeah. no shortcut around it. The only way to get that stabilization is to go through it again and again and again. And so... That it was, I knew there was shifts occurring when finally, I can't remember exactly when, but there was then times where I would go on stage and I would, I would feel comfortable. I would just feel comfortable in my body. Yeah. I'd get a little bit of jitters before, and then I'd shake it out and then I'd go on stage and I was just present. And that's when, you know, like, okay, you're you're getting better and 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 the that impacts the work yeah. right cuz the audience can smell everything if you're nervous if you're scared if you're bullshitting yeah. them they can sense it you don't have to yeah. say anything they can feel it energetically so i'm curious if that trajectory is is at all somewhat of a similar curve as maybe what you felt during your intern year when oh, there were some similar sort of like anxieties and <laughs> and and therefore kind of in that same ramp up of like hey people people know when you're you're in that sort of nervous phase and and when you feel like you're a little bit more confident enough to to share your stuff. Yeah, you know what's interesting though? I 
that never changed for me throughout the three years of residency. Like I remember walking into the ICU, my nervous system would get so dysregulated in the ICU and I, it would take so much energy just to stabilize. And like the last ICU right. day, last ICU rotation, it was exactly the same. As the first, right. Yeah. Well, you know, did I catch your Instagram feed correctly in that uh, you recently went to a clowning workshop? Yes. Yes. In France, I went to, uh, his name was Philippe Gaulier, Philippe Gaulier's school. He actually taught Sasha Cohen Barron, Emma Watson. Mm. Um, he's very well known and clowning is a very respected art form in France, Europe, yeah. um, in the performance art community. And, um, like it was a it was a completely life changing experience. What what were maybe one or two of the nuggets that you sort of discovered, particularly about yourself? Yeah, so I think it's important to say the context of how you are taught at Philippe School. So Philippe teaches you in character, and his character is a old, curmudgeon-y, crusty, angry, racist fr French man. And he teaches you by insulting you. So you'll go up on stage. It, within seconds, you'll say, hi, I'm Priyanka Wally. Welcome to the show. And within seconds, he'll say, stop. And then he'll just begin insulting you. And he'll be, he'll, he'll, and he right. knows how to cut to, he can smell your vulnerabilities and just get to the core of it. And the point of this, why is this? This isn't like, oh, we're just signing up to get our asses handed to us. No. Right. It's sort of a, a sh an exercise in perpetual shame. Yeah. But he he's doing it with intention in the sense that he's trying to get you out of your own way. And he says, once you get past the insults, then the work begins. And so- yeah. He basically shows you the parts of yourself that you either don't want to see or you know, but you're trying to hide. And so that process, okay, first of all, just slight note, I didn't know he was in character until like two days into the class. So I thought he was legitimately just like racist old white dude. And so I was getting super triggered you didn't and pissed. Get sort of an orientation manual? No, or? nobody sent me the memo. I just thought he was an asshole. And so it was day, it was the day three that someone finally, I was getting so triggered. I almost was going to quit the course. And someone finally came up to me and was like, you know, he's in character, right? And I was like, what? I was like, yeah, this is all yeah. a game. Like he's doing, yeah. he's trying to provoke you. And after that, then I finally, I, I was able to just like let go and be part of the experience. And one of the nuggets to answer your question that he kept telling us again and again and again is he would keep saying, you have to find the pleasure. You have to find the pleasure. Without pleasure, there is nothing. Yeah. And he was basically like, if you're not experiencing joy while you're performing on stage, you have no business being on stage. You need to get off stage, get out of France, like get out. And I just came out of that workshop realizing that I don't know shit about experiencing pleasure on stage. It just wiped me out because I think this, the standup that I had been performing to date it got to a point where it was just sort of like, I knew the jokes that worked. I would do the jokes, but it was very mechanical. It wasn't, 
it wasn't that initial, like when I first started out, that initial joy that you feel. And I got schooled. I got schooled. So I, I'm honestly in the process of sort of reinventing what what I want to do now and how that's going to look like because yeah. I just got schooled so hard. You you spent um, some very formative years in Kashmir. Yes. I'm curious how those experiences resonate for you now, not simply from the vantage point of a physician or a or a comedian or a podcaster, but in some ways, you know, do do those experiences permeate your your everyday life in some way? Oh, absolutely. And and to to just give some context to the listeners, yes, I, I was in Kashmir in 1988, two years before the Kashmiri Pandit genocide, and our ancestral home was lost as a result of the exodus of Kashmiri pundits. And yes, so you know, again, to quote Dr. Gabar Mate and and many other trauma informed healers, that trauma isn't what happens to you; it's what happens inside of you. And so. In any kind of traumatic situation, whether it's genocide or or physical abuse or any anything that causes uh, disruption to the nervous system, you you carry that in your body. What's interesting is that I was only two years old when I was in Kashmir, and this is you know my verbal skills were still developing, my brain was still developing, and when it comes to healing from trauma, the Usually when trauma occurs at a very young age, uh, many people as a trauma response to create safety, they repress the memories until a later time when there's more safety and then it's safe to begin processing these memories. So my my memories of that period was um, experiencing a lot of fear. I remember being in the house and and just getting a sense that people were very stressed out. There was just, a, there was tension. It wasn't until three sure. decades later, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I'm a resident. I'm an intern in, in Oregon. I'm in a very safe, loving environment. I was actually staying with a family, um, the Ghoulies. They were this very sweet, loving, white Caucasian family. And, um, I have a very clear memory where I was having a conversation with the father and it was, again, a safe environment. There was nothing unsafe about that. And it was actually quite a very loving conversation. And I remember very clearly as a as a 30-year-old being in this house and out of nowhere sort of being all of a sudden being filled with this sensation of fear and having this mm. thought that someone's going to come in the house and and shoot all of us. And at the time I wasn't yeah. completely clear about the facts at, of what had happened in Kashmir. And it wasn't until years later with the help of therapy that I read about it. And that kind of stuff was happening all the time during that period. And so the point is that is that we can vicariously experience the trauma and carry it in our bodies, and it won't actually end up uh, being released until much later. So how does that impact me? I mean, we we carry this in our bodies, and it shows up when it's ready to yeah. kind of dissolve. Um, and from a collective trauma yeah. standpoint, yeah. Uh, you know, in my my Kashmiri pundit community. I mean, I, I held a workshop recently about helping Kashmiri pundits heal from trauma um, using a somatic process, and um, you know the 
the genocide happened as a community and the healing will also need to happen as a community because our nervous systems are all linked to each other. It's interesting because you wrote that you love understanding the human experience. Yes. Especially how fear impacts our behavior. Yes. You know, in thinking about of your profession and, um, you know, someone who as a pediatrician for me, I, I am so sensitive to adverse childhood experiences yes. and, and trauma informed care and, and how, of course, we're, we're sensitive to that. But as both a physician and a, a creator and a comedian, mm -hmm. it almost it requires some sort of disarming mm -hmm. for those around you. And it, it, is that something that you find to be, in, in some ways, kind of uh, serving in, in, as an accelerator for people to approach their fears or for people to acknowledge their fears, just the same way perhaps that, that you have? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, majority, uh, when people share with me their adverse experiences, I understand. I mean, I and it's not just a cognitive understanding, it's experiential. Yeah. You know, Hypochondriactor is a podcast about so many fascinating and almost connecting medical stories. Mm -hmm. And you, of course, co-hosted with Sean Hayes, who's amazing and you know, for you as a, as a physician, you know, we're, we're trained as scientists and we welcome differentials and pathways to discovery and um, that sort of process. For the non-medical professionals or maybe some of the feedback you've heard from them who listen, does it in some ways require a, a, a faith or a trust in that process to be able to go through this kind of connect the dots experience and relate to it any, any better? That is a really interesting question. I mean, we all kind of, when we sign up in med school, we kind of just go on blind faith that, okay, this is a process that works. But I mean, I, I have to be very honest. I think there are some huge issues with the sort of traditional Western medical way of looking at health and the way we approach bodies. What I have learned as a practitioner is that, yes, we do a lot of things really darn well in our current medical system. I mean, you yeah. need your appendix taken out. We will take that out without complications in like a, an hour. We will do it, right? But there are lots yeah. of things that we're not that good at. And this is where yeah. a lot of different other types of therapies can fill in those gaps. You know, well, and it's almost, yeah. it's almost like being comfortable with the ambiguity in yeah. some ways of things. And maybe walking those folks who are perhaps not medical professionals through that layer of ambiguity with, with some comfort. Oh, totally. I mean, I share office space with an acupuncturist. I think there's some, I am into collaboration. I, I like yeah. the, the different systems that are thinking about things from different perspectives. And this idea that the Western perspective is the only perspective, I think is really quite arrogant. Speaking of collaboration, what would have been sort of the surprising uh, things you may have learned from uh, Sean Hayes? What's that been like for you? Well, what I love about Sean is, one, he keeps me on my toes in a very interesting way that I would have never been able to predict. For example, a caller will come in and talk about whatever, let's give an example, like uh, the splenectomy, they have a splenectomy, right? And so then I yeah. will be like, in my mind thinking, all right, 
I'm going to talk about all of the things about splenectomy and the types of vaccines you need to get and what you need to watch out for and why this is important. And and then Sean will be like, but what's a spleen, Priyanka? Like, what is lymph? You know, and and I'll just be like, oh, right. And and it's actually when you're thinking about things from such a high level, like, oh, you have to give the Haemophilus influenza vaccine when you first splenectomy. And someone's just yeah. like, no, but what's a spleen? It's actually pretty hard to be like, oh, well, it actually takes the blood and it destroys <laughs> the bad blood cells. Like, And explaining it in a, in a very yeah. basic way. I love that challenge, you know? So it's actually, it's gotten yeah. me to think about things in super basic like sesame street level ways that i you don't you just don't take the time in regular practice to do you know when we go to medical school right like we learn this language that is the language of medicine like we we spend years to become fluent in this language and then we spend the rest of our careers trying to basically translate this language into an understandable way to a population that doesn't have a medical background. And the show yeah. just, Sean is the, he's like, he reminds me of this constantly, which I so appreciate. And I mean, it sounds like hypochondriactor is sort of the ultimate merging of your wish list yes. as a physician, <laughs> as a creator. And we're so, we're so happy you're doing it. Priyanka, thank you so much for, for joining us today for a brief conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. And please go to PriyankaWali.com to learn more. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen online at ruckusavenueradio.com and on the Dash Radio app. Yo, this is RMS. Check out my song Free Fall on the Ruckus Avenue rise of South Asian hip hop. Let's go. I be stuck in free fall, waiting for my wings. I don't give a sh-